If you would take your Bibles and go with me to Matthew 18. Let's pray. Father, we so easily talk about your love, but my fear, Father, is that we don't understand your love. Thank you for passages like John 10 and Matthew 18. Um, Thank you for pursuing us. Thank you that your timing and your ways are perfect. And what you call us to is to just rejoice and find joy in you. And for that, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Matthew 18, 10 through 14. Um, Last week, we saw that that God takes sin so seriously that He would like us to gouge out our eyes or any part of us that is leading us astray, that is leading us to sin. Um, And far be it that we should ever lead a little one astray. And of course... Couched in the middle of last week's sermon, and this week's sermon is camp and vacation Bible school and lots of little ones. So, um, <clears throat> or as Rod so ably put it last week, a child of the king. Um, we dare not lead them astray. So, we start out today in Matthew 18 with how prioritized God is when it comes to those who are his. But it also shows in this text how prioritized we should be at the same time. Um, And we're Americans. We think we have a corner on the love of God. I mean, any other attribute we might shirk or not know much about, but we think we understand the love of God. And um, God loves us, right? How much does he love us? To what extent? I mean, you stop and think about. He loves us enough to chastise the nation. <laughs> he lo- loves us enough to chastise the nation and us as individuals. But to think that. I think we think that we're entitled to that. That is what God does. And we have missed this. It scares me to death. So notice with me, Matthew 18, uh, 10 through 14. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and then, one of, and then one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he... Finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father uh, who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So notice verse 10. We're not supposed to despise these little ones. And in other words, it means that we are not to look down on them, um, at least in a spiritual sense. Maybe physically we do. Um, 
And this by itself, if we were just to, just to be faced with first 10, is a revolutionary thought. The children who belong to Christ are just as important to the body of Christ as the members who have been participating in Christ for years. But this is commanded to all of us. It means that as a, it means just as much that a church member with money and means and social status is not more important than a church member who does not. James two, uh, if you would take your Bibles and go with me there, James two. Verse 1, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not... Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man and are not rich. Have, and, and, but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into, into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law of Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Um, So, here, status doesn't mean anything. Um, And I have to ask the same thing James asked. Who do you pay attention to when you come through the door? If you're a child of God, how firmly do you hold the gospel message? If you hold firmly to this gospel, how strongly do you proclaim this gospel? Is this what matters to us? Does the proclamation of the gospel matter not only to you personally, but is it the grid upon which you discern greatness in the kingdom of God? A little one who, is, who isn't stronger or wiser may understand the gospel better. Does that fuel your commendation? The thief on the cross, undisciplined and unbaptized, man that he was, was as much a part of the kingdom of God as the disciple who argued, as we saw at the beginning of chapter 18, to sit at the right hand of Christ. you would take your Bibles and go back to Matthew 18. Now let me ask this question. Are guardian angels myths or facts? Because I know when I was growing up, there was times my mom would come to me and, boy, it's good. Your guardian angel was watching out for you. (laughs) Okay, well, um, I can't say she was wrong necessarily. This is the text she would have used had she used a text. So I want you to, to, to think through this. Are guardian angels a myth in our lives or a fact? 
So let's cover three things here. Um, they are God's messengers of destruction. So if you would, take your Bibles and go with me to Genesis chapter 3. In, you're right, the very first instance of an angel here. Let me get out of the features. Genesis chapter 3. Look at verse 24. This is God. God drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The very first instance we have of an angel, an angel shows up at, at um, God's command and guards the way so that we can't receive eternal life. Uh, the way is shut. We had it for a little bit, and it's shut. Um, and then probably one of my favorites is Second Kings 19.35. Uh, let's see. is the Assyrians in force coming against Jerusalem in Israel. And that night, verse 35, the angel of the Lord. So one angel went out and struck down 185,000. In the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people rose, arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead bodies. How many angels did God send? And yet, I'm going to argue that I probably need more than one angel to guard me as a kid. Um, but they're messengers of, of destruction. So, um, it's in that passage by itself, it's ironic that at Christ's command on the cross, he had a legion of angels ready for him. That that's code for bye bye world. You know it. It doesn't matter, and one angel takes out one hundred eighty five thousand Assyrians, and Christ has a legion of them waiting. Um, secondly, or B uh, under number two, biblically angels are around the clock praisers. Um, ready to do the bidding of the king in a moment's notice. And, of course, we see that in Isaiah 6. Well, we'll come back to Matthew 18 here in just a second, but if you would, go with me to Isaiah 6. Verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him, the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one he called, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations and the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, uh, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King of the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. 
And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. I love that picture. But here they are in around-the-clock praise, back and forth, um, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Um, Of course, we see this in Matthew 18. uh, In verse 10, again, See that you do not despise these despise okay see that you do not despise one of these little ones for i tell you that in the heaven there that's where mom gets guardian angels their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven the other part of an angel is they're around the clock praisers they're always seeing the face of the father in heaven so of course luke 1 uh, I'm going the wrong way. Luke chapter 1, verse 13. This is Gabriel. We're familiar with this story, but it's worth reading just for the sake of understanding angels a little better. A little bit better. Verse 13. The angel Gabriel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth, Elizabeth will bear you a son, and, sh- and you shall call his name John. And you will have, the, have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn away, turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient of the wisdom to the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepare uh, a people prepared. Zechariah said, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. <clears throat> Wrong answer. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I mean, if you're standing in the presence of God, the last thing you're going to do is lie about a message that this one God wants you to send. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe in my believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And so, of course, we know that Zechariah remained silent until... John was born, and he etched it out on a piece of on a um, uh, piece of slate, and uh, that his name would be John, and then he could talk. Um, so, they are primarily God's messengers of destruction. They are around the clock praisers, and they're ready to to do the bidding of the king in a moment's notice. And that's why they can here they are before the throne of God, feet covered. Face is covered, and even they can't behold the face of God, and yet, with a third set of wings, they are ready to go. They want to go. So the moment, here's the message, you know, go to Mary, and Gabriel says, sure thing. And in a moment's notice, he's there. Uh, see, they are very consumed with the thought of redemption. Um, if you would, go with me to First Peter 1, 10. First Peter one ten. 
Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that you that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. Um, that passage by itself is is mind-boggling because angels right now are in awe of redemption. They're in awe of the salvation that we have in Christ. Um, when they fell, God didn't say, here is repentance in Christ. You can have it. It was not offered to them. So the whole idea of salvation is mind-boggling to a an angel because it wasn't offered to them. It was offered to us. And what do we do? <laughs> we don't have that kind of awe, do we? Not at all. And likewise, if you would, go with me to 1 Corinthians uh, 11. Verse 10. And we're not going to talk about head, head coverings today and the ins and outs of all of that, but there is a really... Awesome passage here, First Corinthians 11.10. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angel. So right now, as we're conducting our worship service, there's angels that we're unaware of that are watching us. And what happens when, when God redeems my heart from being a wild and reckless uh, Rebellious person, submission. Isn't that crazy? I go from being a, a guy who hates being told what to do to being a guy who sits under the authority of God himself. And so, again, they're blown away. They are blown away at the idea that God would take wild and rebellious people, people just like me, and see the sign of authority, not not just on their head, but in their lives. Um, so they are very biblically. Angels are very consumed at the thoughts at, at the thought of redemption. Um, now I don't have verse eleven in my Bible, but how many of you have verse eleven in your Bible? Matthew chapter ten, verse eleven. Okay, and it reads, "For the Son of Man came to save the lost." Right? Isn't that what it reads? Okay. Um, now, even though this is absent from the ESV. Um, its absence here does not take away from the cardinal doctrine, which any time you read translations like that, and there's verses missing that you either grew up reading or not, um, does this the question is, does it take away from any kind of doctrine, any cardinal doctrine? And it doesn't take away from the cardinal doctrine of God's pursuit of man in salvation. Um, it doesn't take away... Uh, what is in the scripture that we know is inspired, Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, or Ezekiel 34, 11, um, for thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and I will seek them out. So we're, we've not lost anything because the ESV doesn't carry verse 11 in English. There's, there's no English, there's not an English translation of this, of this verse. Just because we fail to have it in the ESV, um, Although it can be seen in other translations, does not mean it's a poor translation. 
But maybe the translators are trying to be faithful to the ancient sources as best they can by not including it. So as much as we would sit back and go, that's an incomplete version, how about this is as complete as we get? And maybe they're just attempting to be faithful in by not putting it in there as they were being faithful by putting it in there. Notice verses 12 and 13. And these verses, of course, if, let's read these first. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep uh, the, and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that will never that never went astray. So um, these verses begin with a question. And what do you think? Is this a fair question? Um, what do you think? Um, the first century Jew didn't care for shepherds. And because they didn't care for shepherds, this is kind of a silly question. Um, the 99 are far more important than any of the one sheep that went astray. Um, what's one less sheep? When you have 99 sheep, what's one less? <laughs> I'm having trouble concentrating. You know, all right. Big deal, right? What's what's one sheep? How many of you had sheep before? I'd love to see all ninety-nine leave, frankly. Um, <laughs> but to God, and thankfully, this is just a parable, right? My American Christianity agrees with the Jews of the day. Let it go, right? Who cares about the one straying Christian? According to this passage, I don't understand the kind of love that it takes to go and search for the one lost sheep. I don't understand the shepherd. I don't understand the love of God. Not like this. Um, it's not just that the shepherd leaves and seeks after the straying one. He searches the mountains. Um, he, he leaves the flock there. Um, Assumedly, that's where the, the straying sheep is at. And we can assume that because he left the 99 on the mountain, that that's where this one was at. So he went to a place we consider very uncertain. Mountains are not certain places. Um, they're risky places. Um, all kinds of dangers and possibilities that something can go wrong. This is the place the shepherd went to. Even more ironically, he saw a sheep that wasn't smart enough to stay with the flock. So it's not just that he went after the straying sheep. This, If you've been around sheep at all, they love to be together. Um, they love, they, they love, they are, they are a herding, they, they, they very much have a flock mentality. So one that goes astray is Okay. And yet this, this shepherd goes after this straying sheep. Um, yeah. And that's not all. He finds the sheep. And what does he do? He rejoiced. As if finding this straying sheep was not enough, this shepherd rejoices over the lost sheep. I've, I've had to find my dog before. Um, it's really humbling to go from neighbor to neighbor knocking on door on doors saying have you seen my dog 
the Welsh Corgi. And when she's finally found, the last thing that I want to do <laughs> is rejoice. I don't rejoice. Yeah. Not here. The great shepherd is happy to find the missing sheep. Happy to find the missing sheep. And let me say this again. I don't understand this kind of love. I just don't. I want to say, forget the one for the 99. Follow the, go with the 99. Who cares about this, the one that strays? It is not that big a deal. It is. Verse 14. Um, so it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven. Uh, it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And there's a whole lot of debate over our will. Is it free? Do you have free will? Is it a bound will? Um, choices are presented to us each day. Choices to follow or not. Are we predestined? Or not? Mm, how does that predestining work? How does it? How does it? How does he do this? Does he predestine us, as the word might indicate, or? Does he just look into the future and see who's going to choose him? Are we elect or not? And he's big enough he can do it every once, right? But nobody is really asking about the will of God. Nobody's considering the one who willed all things into existence out of nothing. And nobody's considering the one who willed Adam and Eve... Uh, to leave the garden with a word and then will the fearsome creature like a cherubim to stand guard. No one considers the will of the one whose throne is surrounded by angels who stand to do his bidding at a word. Nobody considers the will of the one who seeks and saves the lost or the will of the one who went to the cross. What about his will? Is it free? We refuse to consider the will of the shepherd. This shepherd leaves the 99 to seek the one. We want God's will for our lives. We just don't want it to make us uncomfortable. Is that true? We expect God's will for our lives to make us happy and complete. And none of what we want has anything to do with the gospel or its propagation. So what's his will for you based on Matthew 18, 10 through 14? What's his will for your life? We want to separate the will of God from what he expects from us. But verse 10 doesn't allow that. 11 through 14 is the fleshing out of verse 10. Our understanding of God's love is only as legitimate as our exercise of that love. We cannot claim to know and love him if we refuse to love others as he does. It's an empty love. If, if, we, can, if we can say it with our mouths, but not show it with our lives, it's an empty love. It's not real. So how do we apply this? First, we need to be reminding ourselves uh, daily, every day, 
of the cross. John Stott says, far from offering us flattery, the cross undermines our self-righteousness and we can stand before it only with bowed head and a broken spirit. And that's it. Unfortunately, some of us walk in here with our heads held high and walk out of here the same way we came in. And that is not the purpose of the church. And certainly not the purpose of the gospel. Someone died for you and me because of the filth of our sin. And every Sunday, we come in here, we celebrate someone dying for us because of the filth of our sin. To walk away from here the same way we came in, we've missed the gospel. Either we worship in such a way, and, and it has to be with humility, and it, it's that way because we're reminded of the cross. Or, by the way, you only have two choices. Either approach the cross with humility, or you approach it as a Pharisee. Secondly, let me make a distinction between between a straying sheep and someone lost. If God so if God so chooses to send you to hell because of your sin, then justice has been served in this way. God is glorified. But if you are His, you cannot finally outrun Him. He will find you. What if you're Straying today. If you're here today and you've strayed. Or you're lost. Let me say it doesn't matter. What should always our response be to straying from God and or being lost? Repent. <laughs> Repent of your straying. Uh, just as you would, uh, I would encourage lost people here. Repent. Repent and believe the gospel. Um, it's, it is what Christ has to say, and it, it was good 2,000 years ago. It's good today. Repent and believe in the gospel. Third, how do you view the love of God? Have you been affected by this love? Albert Barnes says, So God rejoices that man is restored, seeks his salvation, and wills that that not one thus found should perish. If God thus loves and preserves the redeemed, then surely man should not despise them. Do we, can we honestly say that we love people the same way God does? Do we understand the love of God? Do we understand that this is how God loves us? Is this the God we worship? Is it, is it the God that is it the God that we worship that we saw multiply loaves and fishes? Do we really care about each other, or do we care about the number? Is it is it is it is it that easy to replace? A person. Well, they're not here today, but we had 
this many people in attendance. We had that much offering last week. We can't even, we're not allowed, we can't say anymore that that's our offering. Not, 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 and worship the God who multiplies loaves and fishes. Think about all the insurmountable things that God has done. I mean, just the fact that he loved me enough to pursue me, just that he loved you enough to pursue you, to care about you enough. Do I love God this way? Do I understand the love of God? Or is it just a number? Church, do we love God? The God of the scripture, do we love the God of, of America? And that says, I'm confined by how much you give. And I'm confined by how many people come. Let's pray. Father, you alone. You alone challenge challenge us in our worship, not only just in how we worship, but who we worship. Guard us against the numbers. Guard us against chasing the numbers. And and how easily we forget it's people that matter. It's a false God when we chase numbers. So guard our hearts, guard our church, God, against these things. Help us to prioritize the things that matter. In Jesus' name, amen.